Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Put him in the bin, take him out to the trash and don't let him back in the football club. <laughs> Welcome back to the front three. Up front this week, it's me, of course, banging in the goals. Um, Nico, do you want to be on the? Do you want to be on the left wing? I mean, you are usually on the left wing, so we'll stick you out there. So that, that suits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good. I can, I can cut inside on the right. And that makes you very much on the right wing, Chris. Very appropriate. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Not, not to cast any uh, spurious aspersions, but I have, and I will. Um, thank you so much for joining us, guys. The long, long season is over. So today we thought we'd talk about which Premier League teams have actually been successful. Who would you say has had a good season? We'll come on to that. Um, we've also got Statman Dave joining me to talk about assessing the race for the top four, Manchester United and Chelsea, of course, finishing above Leicester. What does it all mean? Statman Dave is going to be joining us to discuss that. And at the end of the show, we're going to be revisiting Black Lives Matter, talking about three months down the line from when we first started this podcast. Where are we now? But um, as I said, I did want to talk about which teams have been successful in the Premier League this season, because I thought it was interesting looking down the table. You know, who would you say has actually had a good campaign? But I did want to start with the Premier League itself, Nico, because have they had a successful season? I mean, when we started this podcast back in May, when we came back, we were obviously very dubious. We were obviously very wary of Project Restart. Um, here we are at the end of it, I think it's fair to say. I think the Premier League are going to be speaking about it as an unqualified success. But was it, in your opinion, Nico? Um, I think it's it's one of those things that... You know, I kind of listened to myself starting that answer and, and sort of the typical podcast BS of like, you know, maybe this, but maybe that. And I, I, I don't think it is. And there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's like a mountain of hypocrisy that I think at least I see myself to sit on um, a lot of the time as a, as a Westerner, as a person who critiques a lot of the things that we're always kind of referencing on the show. Um, but yeah, like, you know, I'm on a sports podcast talking about the, the tactical legitimacy of Manchester United while also inherently disagreeing with the restart of sports, whether that's here in the United States, where I think the coronavirus response has been the worst of anywhere, um, or in the UK, where I think it's been better, but by no means has it been perfect. And, you know, a lot of people say, you know, a lot of people have sort of these jaded, cynical, sort of tired opinions about what can be done and what has been done about the virus. But at the same time, 
we didn't do enough. Um, I don't, I don't think we did enough because there were, there were deaths that were avoidable with regards to, to COVID. And while some people I think like to separate the idea of sports restarting and the Premier League and, and so on and so forth, the difficult part of that is that, and I said this sort of when the Bundesliga was restarting all these things, like even if your country has the viable statistics to say, okay, we can get started, we can get going again, people can go out and be a little less um, careful about the, 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 the spread of the, the virus, you know, the, the problem with that is that things that are social, like sports, create a, a, a reason for people to get together, create a, a reason for people to to go ahead and celebrate to, together and to do things with one another. And we saw it with Liverpool winning the league, like people got together and they wanted to celebrate. And so when you do those things, you know, you kind of defer the responsibility to the individual. And it's in this situation where I think the people who are meant to at least tell us what to do in a, in a, in a positive way, like they can't tell us what to do or force us to do anything in particular, at least not now or, or not in a strict way but they can inform us about the best possible practices. They didn't do that. And it's one thing to blame individuals and, and people and their rationale for believing that, you know, coronavirus is caused by telephones or 5G or whatever. But it's another thing to, to say, like, we could have held off on sports. We could have canceled the season and we could have avoided more deaths. And I think it's in that specific uh, uh, sort of aspect of it that we don't want to look at it and we don't want to talk about it because we all participate in it. And yet I think we have to. Well said, Dico. I mean, it sounds like uh, you're just still part of the null and void brigade though. You know, <laughs> it's time to get over it. The, the season's done. It was an unqualified success. And that's that. Uh, not to be less childish. Uh We were talking obviously about the procedures that we put in place, whether it was worth it. Obviously there is that... There is that unavoidable financial and, and sort of self-interest that comes into play when we're talking about the Premier League returning. Is there a way to sort of make peace with that, given what Nico's talking about, given the, the unavoidable sort of situations and circumstances that come about, which do ultimately increase risk and therefore uh, the risk of death? Well, if I, can, if, I can, if I can speak to that, though, I think like... Oh, here we go. <laughs> like I sort of sort of referenced in the last uh, the last answer, like when I I you know again maybe call me cynical or whatever the case is, but when the Bundesliga restarted, I said you know there is a they are they are taking advantage of a financial benefit that they have by being the first country where the R over one ratio of how the virus was spreading in Germany. Um, you know, they were taking advantage of that and whether that was in good conscience and saying that we can get back to sport and obviously people made, you know, the observation, the argument that like, you know, money also keeps people alive and people having jobs and, you know, people having their income come back to them. Um, regardless of that, the Bundesliga did have a financial opportunity because it is a, a market competitor with the Premier League and with the Liga and with Serie A and with all these other leagues to come back first. So while there's like a, there's both sides of, of, of the coin here, um, you know, one argument that was presented to me by Raphael Honigstein was that the reason they're restarting is not because of these cynical reasons, these monetary reasons, but then just cited the fact that they need to, that they're beholden to the, to the billion dollar, you know, the multi-billion dollar uh, TV contracts. And again, there's like an element to real, of realism here where we're saying that, 
a TV contract is worth more than somebody's life. That's the long and short of it. That's what somebody is saying when they say that teams need to go back to playing because of a TV contract. And while, you know, I understand and everybody is ostensibly understands the limits and things that can happen when you're in breach of contract, this is an extenuating circumstance. This is a global pandemic. And I find it difficult to believe or I find it I find it extremely difficult to stomach that we can cannot in these extenuating or or difficult circumstances breach the terms of a contract and 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 make an exception um, when when the when when the circumstances present themselves as such. The thing is, if we had cancelled the season, if we had not avoided everything, Nico, we would have robbed ourselves of the glory of Tottenham Hotspur finishing sixth in the Premier League. <laughs> um, an unqualified success for Jose Mourinho and his team of <laughs> basically. Um, they were 14th, Chris, when the special one joined the club. And yeah, they clawed themselves up the table to sixth with nothing more than grit, determination, and... Eric Dyer at centre-back. <laughs> yeah, Eric Dyer at centre-back. Uh, very effective, possession-averse game plan. <laughs> Completely focused on the character attack. It was unbelievable. Um, an incredible story, a fairy tale. You might say, Chris, so good it's been made into a documentary that no doubt is going to be one of the greatest documents of sporting achievement in uh, in human history. Uh, disagree of anything I just said, Chris? Uh, no, I don't actually. I, th- I think um, <laughs> I think ba- based on uh, how low the bar was, um, I think he's done okay to get them where they are. Um, okay, yeah, that sounds that sounds more more appropriate than unqualified success, as I put it. Um, success by someone unqualified. Um, no, yeah. he's, you know what? He's done well to get them where they are. Um, <laughs> they've got European football, which will be helpful. It's not Champions League, but that's a benefit still. Um, I think, honestly, the, the position he's at now is that going into next season, there really are very few, if any, excuses because he's going to have some opportunity now to refresh this squad. I was talking to to Flav this morning, in fact, um, trying to of the Fighting Cock podcast fame. Yeah, just trying to evaluate the um, the period under Mourinho, and I just think that in in a lot of ways he made such a harsh rod for his own back by commending the group of players and and talking about how great they were and all this kind of stuff. Because then when he came to criticise them, it just looked like his opening remarks were very disingenuous so yeah i'll be curious to see what he does in the transfer window defensive midfield is clearly an issue but i think it would be incredibly reductionist to say that this is purely a personnel issue i think personnel is part of the ball of issues that that tottenham are at the minute the bigger thing for me is how he how he evolves his style because i think at the minute he is still far too reactive and I think I need to see a style that looks proactive against the teams outside the top six that want to sit off the ball and give that responsibility back to Tottenham and also a robustness so that he can actually sort of switch gears a little bit because I think too much of his players, it's either one or the other. It's not. There's not much of a fluidity in how they approach games. Hmm. This is the thing, Nico. The, the the break came at a fantastic time for Spurs. 
obviously full strength once they came back. Harry Kane, Son, Suzuko, many key players that I think Mourinho was really struggling without. To talk about the style as well, that very counter-attacking approach works perfectly against Leicester, worked perfectly against uh, Arsenal in terms of getting those results. Less effective against Crystal Palace in that final game of the season. How do you think or, or will Jose Mourinho evolve this going into next season with the addition of the likes of potentially uh, Hoijberg from Southampton. Do you see Mourinho being able to build on this? Is this a platform? Or are we just going to see the same old story next season? No, he won't. He won't evolve it. <laughs> it's pretty simple. Um, I think the, the the problem, and I've sort of long articulated this in, in other conversations, I think, but I'll say it here for, for posterity. Like The difficulty with Spurs, I think what's heartbreaking about the club is that they had a manager for X amount of years, however long Pochettino was there, that was doing that was executing a plan that was perfect for that club. They don't have the means to compete financially with Manchester City or some of the other clubs in the top six, but they needed to play the same style of football because that's how the material conditions of the game now have decided that teams that have better players and sit towards the higher end of the table need to play. And so they had a manager who was taking gambles, unfinished products, kind of players that aren't all the way there some of the time and adjusting that to a possession system. That's what he, that's what he did from the start. He went from sort of like a heavy pressing to scaling that back in for the sake of possessing the ball with a little bit more control, like Chris said, be a little bit more proactive, but in the bigger games, maybe be transitional. And that was working to great effect. The problem is, is that that happens more quickly with money. Pep Guardiola is a perfect example of that. Like he can, buy the players and the pieces that he needs so that that that, that process doesn't take that long. Tottenham then decided because of rough patch, and it wasn't a rough patch to scoff at, but a rough patch to get rid of that manager that had done tons of work to get them there. And they went in the complete opposite direction. And like I said, it's with a manager that in his past few jobs has shown the complete inability to uh, sort of execute and implement that necessary style of football. So that's the difficulty here is that like like you mentioned or like Chris mentioned everywhere he's gone now it's seemingly a personnel issue. Tottenham have a decent team and they did a lot of decent things with the players that they had then. Manchester United also have a decent team and they they're doing even better things um than when he was there. At a certain point it's more just about the person that's unable to implement that style of football and I think it's only going to get worse as he continues to, to, to be there. But what if we win the Europa League next season? You know? <laughs> what if we win the FA Cup? Playing, you know, it's all going to be worth it. You know it. what? Sure. It's, it's funny you say that. I know I know, appreciate that that is a little bit facetious on your part. Like you're speaking tongue-in-cheek a little bit. Me? Um, <laughs> but you know, you know what it is? I think I was. this was, again, was something I was discussing with, with Father Smalling, the idea of when... They decided to get rid of Pochettino. Who was on the market conceivably that you could bring in that would provide a kind of continuation for what that team was at the moment? I think either way, you would have had to try and buy someone out of a club. Um, yeah. And you would have then also had to, because I think we can all agree, regardless of who you put in, you were going to have to change the squad somewhat. You're going to have to refresh it. Vertonghen was, was still going to leave. Like There was change had to come is what I'm essentially saying. So the cost of Mourinho still makes my eyes water. That 15 million a year, that is insane to me. 
But if I just look at it for a second and say, well, the two options were either you try and find a manager who can provide continuation and you refresh the squad, or you go for this short-term jolt, you win a trophy, you make yourself look more appealing. It's not what I would have done personally, but I can also see why Daniel Levy tried to do it because I think he's looked at it and said, you know what, as terrible as that Man United situation was that he was at, he still got them in Europa League, still got them a domestic cup. If he could do that for us, we'd love that. Like, even if it's the Europa League, you know, I appreciate some Man United fans maybe scoffed at the Europa League a bit. Can't imagine Tottenham fans would, right? You'd be delighted if you won the Europa League in 12 months' time. But but let me present the more difficult case to you then. You win the Europa League, you win a domestic cup, let's say it's the Carabao Cup or whatever, like whatever it ends up being next year. <laughs> but you absolutely hate watching your team. You dislike it. What the fuck is the point? But yeah, yeah, that's the thing. I think that is what's going to happen. I think that's, as I said a couple of weeks ago, that is the inevitability of next season, we might well win the Europa League or the FA Cup. The season after, it all falls apart. Munio goes, we go back to the well. <laughs> Raf Hasnall comes in and uh, we start all over again. That's that's what's going to happen over the next year or so. But, so we've all got that to look forward to, which is going to be great. But if, but if I could, <laughs> you know when Arsene Wenger left Arsenal and we all said, oh, I wouldn't want to be the man after Arsene Wenger. I'd want to be the man after him. That's mm. that, that replay. <laughs> you want to be the man after Mourinho. <laughs> There's an element of like, I'm not saying Spurs are looking at it this way, but you could in theory say, okay, whoever's coming after Pochettino is, is going to have a big job on their hands because they're going to have to refresh the squad. They're going to have to do a lot of things. So put Mourinho in there. Let him do whatever. If he gets that trophy, that's great. See if, but he, we all, see if he can squeeze what he can out of these players in their prime over this yeah, next year or so. Just, if, if he is this, this short-termist who will essentially firebomb the whole place, okay, <laughs> but if the trade-off is we get a trophy and then yeah. in, let's say, 12, 18 months, Nagelsmann's available and things feel quite untenable like they did at the end of Man United where he was against everyone, you get rid of him, you bring Nagelsmann in and then you transition again because I don't think he's going to have a lot of real opportunity to do a lot this summer, Mourinho. They've not got much to spend, Tottenham. So it's not going to be wholesale changes. It's going to be one or two carefully selected players that I would imagine Daniel Levy's going to run rule over and there's going to be a lot of um, checks and balances in place. I'm just going to start making that meme now. You know, the uh, this is fine gif with uh, the character holding the little mug. It's yeah, going to be Mourinho dog, yeah. with a Europa League trophy. That's going to be made 12 months ahead of time. So we're all set for next year. Um, let's talk about Wolves because Wolves, I think Fred said, <laughs> had a successful season. A slight dip in form after the restart. Saw them finish seventh. They were pipped to that Europa League spot for now by Spurs, pending what happens in the FA Cup final. But they did do the double over Man City. Nico, they've got Raul Jimenez, Adam Atroyo. They're still in the Europa League. Everything is coming up in house for Wolves, Nick. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of difficult to evaluate circumstances or expectations or success of a league when you talk about anyone that isn't directly at the bottom or, you know, really vying for a title because so much of it is not meaningless. And like you said, Europa League and, and European qualification. But like if you look at a team like Wolves now that are going to compete in the Europa League, you know, does that is that squad able to stretch itself across Europe? Is are they able to maintain the same uh, ability in the league that they've been great? 
um, but also have those games, you know, in, in Krasnodar and, and other places, you know, across Europe <laughs> against against all kinds of teams. And, like, it's a good competition. It's great for the fans. But at the same time, like, there's an element to where you can you can play in the Premier League and you can be a Premier League team and you can be a Premier League team for a number of years. But the game, talent-wise and financially, entirely changes when you start to broach those European spots and you need a squad that's able to compete across three or four or five competitions. So the, the, there's almost like a, you know, a, a paradox to succeeding because if you don't have the monetary ability, they have great players. They're a really good team. They're great to watch. I, I really like watching Wolves. Like, you know, Jota is great. Neves is fantastic. Like even I wish they would play Vallejo a little bit more and, and a variety of other guys, but like, it's great to watch, but do they have the ability to continue that success or will mm. they kind of revert? Will they fly too close to the sun like Southampton did? That's the interesting question, isn't it? Because obviously Nuno Espirito Santos, Chris, wow, fantastic what a manager. There. Thank you. I tried to do the old, I tried to roll the eyes. Um, but obviously a fantastic manager. But as Nico says, how do you build on that next season? There's that, there is that glass ceiling almost um, into the top six and beyond where the Wolves potentially look to build on this for the next campaign. Yeah, it's, it is a great question. And I think some of the reason it's so important is I am I will confess to have not seen every Wolves game, but the ones that I have, I, f- I feel like Nuno fits into that category that we put uh, Mourinho into, which is a coach that is better at being reactive than proactive. Um, and I think... How does he move on to the next level with that? I think it's it's a, as much a tactical as a personnel thing because the thing with Wolves is they have that much discussed relationship with Jorge Mendes, um, which opens them up to a much higher caliber player, I think, than than most clubs because of his own links through Gestifuto or however you pronounce that. So I'm not terribly concerned with Wolves' ability to attract new players and move up the league. I think they'll be able to do that quite comfortably. My curiosity is is that Nuno has built such a strong relationship with the supporters and everyone attached to that club is what do they do with him? Can he genuinely move himself to the next level and take them forward? Or is it going to be that awful situation where they're going to have to go out and get someone else? Which again, you would argue just because of the presence of Mendes will not be difficult. They will not struggle to attract a better quality manager in the long run. What about Sheffield United? Finished ninth. They said it couldn't be done, Nico. They said Sheffield United, a newly promoted side, is going to be going straight back down. Instead, Chris Wilder, with his godlike tactical brain, <laughs> took advantage of those who underestimated them and guided them to a top half finish. Genuinely. We all love Sheffield United. We all love Chris Wilder. How impressive is this, Gene? I think it's really impressive um, because... You know, as you said, a lot of people weren't really expecting them to do so. And and with, again, with the financial disparity that exists and the talent disparity that exists, it can be really easy for a team for like Sheffield to 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 um, to falter because, you know, some of the some of the tactical practices that work in the championship might not do so in the Premier League. But um, Chris Wilder has has managed to continue to take advantage of those, you know, much lauded overlapping center backs and I think you know when I first read about it prior to the Manchester City game which they played us to within an inch of our lives um each time we faced them um you know it was something that I was like that 
too much space at the back. Like it won't work. You're offering too much forward, but it does take advantage of the space really well. You know, we all know the, the we're all well-versed on the, um, the advantages that, that Pep Guardiola sort of repopularized into the game with the, with the, you know, use of the fullbacks and, and the space that they were offered at a certain point in the footballing landscape. And Chris Wilder has sort of emulated that to a certain degree with the center backs. At the same time, I think voice of doom that I am, that needs to be adjusted for next year because people have gotten onto that now and said, okay, the space will be coming from the center backs. We understand where the overload is going to come from. It has worked. You know, the, we'll see how it fares the next year, but for now, fantastic achievement. Enjoy yourselves. Do you think they're going to get found out almost Chris? Do you think that's a, a potential danger for Chris Wilder and Sheffield United next season? Yeah, it always is. It's the, it's the dreaded sophomore slump. Um, I seem to remember a Birmingham city side doing that with uh, Scott Dan and Roger Johnson many years ago. Um, I think with Wilder, it's difficult because yes, he's come in and he's brought in something tactically that is very interesting and has clearly worked with these overlapping centre-backs that we talk about. There's a lot more to that Sheffield United team as well, but that's the thing I think that stood out. Excuse me. What I always think about with a team that gets promoted and, and does this well is what's the transition phase in terms of just looking at some of these players, John Fleck, Ollie Norwood, etc. The the move for Sanderberg from uh, Genk, that was a very big, ambitious move from that club. So, so what is going to be this summer's Sanderberg move and how do you integrate those players into things? Because I think... No one will disagree. Burke had a little bit of a sore start, but then came into it as as things got on and has performed well. But it, it, the thing with Wilder is he's very much tried to build a squad, and he's brought the likes of um, oh god, why am I blanking on his name? Luke Freeman uh, from I think it was QPR. So he, he's tried to really pad out a squad in, and given chances to Jack Rodwell and Rosario Zivkovic and Ravel Morrison. But I just don't know if that same level of punt, if you wanted, can continue. I think they have to really refine that process. Um, and that's where I wonder, as you transition out the players that got you up into players that maybe haven't been on that journey, how do you keep all of the levels the same in the intangibles, but also move this team into a situation where, again, it can do different things from a tactical perspective because I think Nico's right the the three center backs this overlapping element it's it's obviously something teams are going to target next season and I think they will give Sheffield United less room to do that kind of thing there will be significantly less underestimating of them as a team it's also like do they not how do they avoid not just completely getting fleeced because yeah Sanderberg was a great buy and he's a really talented player but like I, you know, there are plenty of teams that want to buy him. There are plenty of teams in the Premier League that are going to want to buy him, even this summer. Um, whether you know, maybe that's not a possibility right away, but at, you know, at the same time, they have to retain some of that to continue to do what they do, and that ha- obviously needs to be balanced with retaining a, a decent enough squad and, and building one, like you said. It's interesting to think about Sheffield United when you look at Burnley. They finished place below them in tenth place. Um, the thing I cannot abide, Chris, is someone like Chris Wilder is stealing all the thunder of Sean Dyche, the most underrated manager in the Premier League. 
They finished behind Sheffield United on goal difference. And yet, who's getting all the attention? Sean Dyche, though, could be leaving. If reports are to be believed, looks like it could be the end of his time at Burnley. As we say, when we look at Sheffield United, and we're talking about some of these other clubs here, in terms of that glass ceiling, in terms of that mid-table sort of purgatory, you can you can keep finishing in these sort of positions. I think Sheffield, sorry, I think Burnley were 15th last season, 7th the season before. Sean Dyche, obviously a, an English manager who's received a lot of plaudits over the past few campaigns. And yet it feels like it's sort of petering out to this this potentially mutual ending between the club and the manager. But how do you sort of examine potentially his time at Burnley, which could be coming to an end? Um, it, it very much reminds me of Eddie Howe with Bournemouth, but they're a little bit further down the line um, in so much as they've gone down. I think they've lost significant momentum. The, the signings that have been made don't really feel like they've been well thought out. They've just felt like better players in inverted commas because they're at better clubs. Um, and I think maybe that's the roadblock that Daesh has hit that Eddie Howe hasn't, or didn't rather, is that when he has sought to seek more ambition from Burnley, they've kind of said, well, I don't think we can do that. So that's why they're parting ways. He's been there a long time as well it's only a couple of months away from eight years and I think that's the other problem is that you can get into such a rhythm and a pattern that before you know it you've kind of wiled away a lot of your career potentially your best years even when you're still kind of learning and growing and developing as a coach at this one club and the list of achievements realistically you've got the promotion after relegation You've then got that spell in Europe that was very much the blink of an eye. But outside of that, is it... I mean, it's look, it's enough to put on a DVD, but is it enough that he's going to sit back and think, you know what, if I'd really just pushed myself, I could have potentially had a shot at a, a job higher up. So it's no surprise to me that he's considering leaving because I, I just don't know how they make the jump personally, given their financial situation and everything attached to it. Does a jump for Sean Deitch to Crystal Palace make sense, Nico? That's the club he's been linked with. It feels like Roy Hodgson could also kind of be petering out and coming to the end of his time in South London. Is that a move that makes sense for you? Could that potentially be a step up for Sean Deitch? Is there more scope there? Uh, I mean, I don't know a ton about Deitch outside of his time at Burnley. The thing that I think matched well, sort of as Chris mentioned there, is that Burnley's financial situation is what it is, and, and, and they have to make do with what they have. And the positive aspect there about Sean Deitch is that he seems to be able to do a lot with a little, but that doesn't upscale. You know, that you can't play the way that he likes to play or that he's been associated with playing further up the table and, and expect the same results. The reason that Burnley have done so well under him is because he took players that didn't have as much, seemingly didn't have as much like immediate presented value. And he used them in a way that maximized that and it maximized it as a team and it maximized their position because of where they, because of what people expected them to do from an opposition standpoint. If he goes to Palace, is it a step up? Sure, he might have a little bit more money. But does that really make a significant difference as to how he's going to play? It's dependent on him. If he has greater visions for maintaining the ball in certain games and doing more interesting things with more talented, more interesting players, I think it's that's definitely a step up and that's a possibility. But from what I've seen thus far at Burnley, if he does the same thing, 
Palace will either stay in exactly the same place where they are now <laughs> or maybe move down a little bit. In 11th place, Southampton. Uh, did you know, Chris, Southampton lost 9 0 to Leicester earlier this season? I'm not sure if, you knew. <laughs> I'm not sure if anyone's mentioned that, but they did. Some demanded that Ralph Hassenhut would be sacked. Such was the shame he'd brought upon the club. Um, but Southampton didn't do that, Chris. And it turns out post lockdown, they are the third best team in the league. As I said, finished a very respectable 11th. Almost like Hassan Hutu is a very good manager. And a panic decision like that would have been incredibly foolish, wouldn't you say, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned this on um, James's Alcott's show the other day that the other team I can think of that conceded nine goals in a game was Wigan. They got beat 9-1 at Tottenham. And they stayed up that year too. So <laughs> yeah. it, it raises the question, and I... I can almost see Nico getting annoyed when I, when I propose this. And if you are eight goals down in the Premier League, is it more advantageous to concede a ninth statistically to protect your Premier League status? Um, yeah. But no, it's I, facts. I, these, these, are, these are the facts. This is the thing with, with Hassan Hall. He is, I think, a very good football coach, first and foremost. That is my opening statement. I would follow that up by saying he has transitioned this team into his identity, which was a very stark contrast to his predecessor, uh, Pellegrini, which was a lot more dour and a lot tougher to watch. And in the process, I think you've seen the likes of Pierre Hoiberg come into their own. I think Danny Ings has, has improved, but I think he was always sort of on a good momentum. And even someone like Kyle Walker-Peters, who was a forgotten man at Tottenham, to be brutally honest, has, I think, improved considerably under Hassan Huttle's uh, guidance. Now, that, for me, is evidence of the power of a coach. What really excites me about Southampton is, again, in the same way that this has been a, a conundrum for some coaches we've discussed, he's now got the summer transfer window to potentially do things. And Southampton have wasted a lot of money in the last few years. Um, Guido Carrillo springs to mind, the Argentinian striker. Lamina was good, but then I think got a bit impatient about wanting that next step, maybe that he was promised. Yeah, Jordi Klasse, the, the Dutch midfielder, is now back in Holland. They, they've just, for a team that when they first came up, seemed so methodical in their process, it just seemed like they splashed money on players that they thought, yeah, he'll be good. He. His, his compilation on YouTube has, has a wonderful backing track. Um, so I would like to think that Hassan Hull will be more involved in that process. And if I'm a Southampton fan, I'm very excited for the summer because in theory, we're only going to get better because he's going to be able to get more players that are conducive to the system that he wants to play, which has already shown some really positive early results. Are you excited about Southampton, Nico? Yeah, yeah, I am. I, I always have enjoyed Hassan Hootel. I've always had a soft spot in my heart for for Southampton. I think largely because there are some pretty significant things that haven't broken for them in the past couple of years. You know, we saw them edging towards the top, the upper half of the table a couple of years back, and and I think I think the main moment where they went wrong was sacking Claude Puel. I think he was in a very good moment and with a very good, uh, you know, spot on the team. And you know, he yeah, he was what they made the uh, FA Cup final against United and like had two chances that were clearly not offside or, or whatever the case was 
that were fouls or whatever that they could have easily won that. So th- that season, essentially, they would have won the FA Cup against United in the final and then finished seventh. And that's great for, you know, that's that's a, a smashing success for a club like that. But they only finished seventh and they decided that wasn't enough. And it's interesting because they've had managers aside from, was it Hughes that took over after after Puel or, or someone that are, are relative, ha, has been relatively similar um, tactically with regards to like defensive pressing. And that's something that's like very uh, trendy as it were, like to match the the modern tactical landscape of the Premier League. So I think they've done as well as they can on paper. Like the decision-making has been relatively sound aside from a thing, a few mistakes here and there. Um, but yeah, I think I'm excited to see what else Hassan Huthel can do there because, you know, it's they have a talented group of players. They continue to to get interesting players like Kyle, you know Chris mentioned. Hoiberg is, is really coming to into his own there. He's like he's praised by Guardiola to be like a particularly um, intelligent midfielder. And, and Walker Peters is always exciting. And, and Danny Ings like he's in a good moment too. So it's just about whether things work out for them. And I, I mentioned Buffal specifically because I think not only is he their most exciting transfer or not exciting expensive transfer, but like if someone like him had worked out for them, then I think things would be very different because he's a really talented player, but it just hasn't. Mm. Can't wait to see Hoichberg join Spurs now. Now you've given him that glowing recommendation. <laughs> um, finally, I did want to talk um, about an underloved team who go by the name of Newcastle United. Uh, 13th place finish, Stevie Bruce, the magic man. If he can't do it, no one can. <laughs> Newcastle, as Adam put in the doc, Newcastle legend. Newcastle legend now. This is the thing. Everyone's prediction, finish rock bottom. They actually finished seven places above that, which is is, is impressive in its own right, with a team whose top scorer was John Joe Shelby. <laughs> and of course, we all wax lyrical about Rafa Benitez. He's a miracle worker. He's a genius. Brucey has achieved, I think, something comparable here. Where's the hyperbole, Chris? Won't someone please... Give Stevie Bruce the credit he deserves. Uh, yeah, they've stayed, they've stayed, they've stayed up. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, is not the credit I was looking for, Chris. Where's the hyperbole? What a yes, here we go. Brilliant man with his Geordie accent and his proclivity for bacon. Um, perfect, perfect. <laughs> Who here amongst us does not have a proclivity for bacon? <laughs> I misheard a takeover rumor and thought someone was asking about pig. Um, <laughs> no, look, you know what it is? In pre-season, I think it was Sam T. He asked me about Newcastle and I said, I can't really tell if they're going to finish 19th or 14th. It's it's going to be one of the two. And the reason I said that was because um, when you have a transition like this, there's a little bit of inertia attached to the squad already. And I think you saw that in the early throws of things when they were more defensively minded they didn't concede a ton of goals but they didn't score many either I think as the handbrake came off with Bruce and there was more freedom might be a bit of a generous word but sort of go play lads into the team that did see them score a bit but they were also very open and it's no shock that Martin Dubravka is the busiest goalkeeper in the Premier League for that reason um the, genuinely, the, the worry I have with him is, what's this next season going to be like? Because in theory, every every day, every week, every month that this group works with him, any of the work that was done before is eroded away. Now, sometimes that's great if the work was bad with the previous coach, but Newcastle were a very functionally defensive team that 
created chances in a less than subtle way sometimes, but occasionally could play football. I must be honest, I still am not 100% sure what this team's default method for trying to score a goal is. Um, in terms of... Alain saying Maxim. Yeah, kind of. It's like... Like, <laughs> it's funny because like, I, I was thinking of City as I said that because they've got that sort of trademark goal where you pass it in behind the fullback and then you cut it back or, or whatever. I don't know what that trademark move is for Newcastle. It, fe- it feels like genuinely, that we joke, but it feels like give it to St Maximum and see what he can do. And that's like so much pressure to put on one player, especially if in two weeks' time, Wolves, as they've been linked, or his £70 million will take him. Because Almiron is not that clear. Almiron, I've said from minute one, is far more like Angel Di Maria at Real Madrid, where he is a ball carrier that will then try and link up with other attackers in the final third. He's not going to put the finishing touch on all the time. Just as you say that about about Saint-Maxime, Chris, something came across my timeline about oh, no. 20, uh, the, the, this past season's dribbling behavior, and he sits in the perfect spot between successful dribbles and fouls drawn and net ball losses. He's just slightly behind uh, Zaha and Traore in terms of effectiveness. So he's really amongst the best of, in the league with carrying the ball and making something of it. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't need them to <laughs> know that. <laughs> For those listening, uh, Chris looks incredibly frustrated. Right now. You know what? Just that I Roy Hodgson rubbing his eyes on the bench a few seasons ago. That's exactly what we're witnessing now. But with Chris, it's unbelievable. It's pitch perfect. Where he just kind of looks like, oh. um, yeah. No, you know what it is. He came with a reputation of being a bit of a troublemaker, um, someone that could enormous amount of swag. Rub people up the wrong way. Yeah, but but he, the truth is, he's been a delight. Like, on and off the pitch, he's been a delight. He's really engaged with supporters and he's very well loved. And he is brilliant. I think in the last few games, what I've seen, maybe post Bournemouth, is there's just like a, a raggedness to his play because like there's just he gets the ball so often. And then in the on the last game of the season against Liverpool... They moved him centrally. And like if you ever need to understand why sort of your position on the field is so important, like look at that, because he's suddenly facing his own goal more often, getting the ball, got a defender right up his backside, and it just kills his effectiveness in a lot of instances because he's not able to to really get any momentum going. So that's my concern is that next season, a lot of those games where sort of like Sheffield United away, Games like that, uh, maybe even Chelsea at home in January, where you sat there and went, oh, how on earth have they won that? They won't win that. They'll lose it. And <laughs> Well, the, the, I mean, the, the, the unfortunate thing is, the storm cloud above all this is that takeover, which we could do like three separate pods on the morality of the whole affair. But in just <laughs> simple terms, it puts the club in a weird stasis where... Mike Ashley has even less incentive. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. ...to spend money than he did before because there's a good chance he knows he's planting a tree he's never going to sit under. And at the same time, he would love every opportunity to use that as an excuse. And so... If they greenlit the takeover tomorrow, the spending habits are drastically different. And at the same time, even the owners, I would argue, the new owners would probably have less of a leash for Bruce if he started the season poorly than Mike Ashley, who I would say historically will very much wear out a manager until like, okay, he's not going to win another game. Now we'll change it. (laughs) So it's, it's, it's just such a po- like. I always used to joke that like the only thing black and white about Newcastle is the kits, but like, it's such a polarizing football club at the minute to the point where in the space of a day, I can be a little bit enthused that oh we might be a football club again that kind of does some stuff with a horrific set of owners, to oh dear god like we've got the Labrador in front of the computer that says I have no idea what I'm doing. Like that, it's it's either or. Like there's no in between. Like this is not. I know I said nineteenth or fourteenth this season. I promise you now, I cannot envisage that again. And it's it's very much like seventeenth, eighteenth, or nineteenth. <laughs> oh, it, it might even be one of those seasons. Remember when Villa went down and they just tanked? If there's a good chance it could just be that. Really, like there's a lot of issues with this squad. Mm, it does seem news on that takeover is imminent, coming in the next week or so which could end in Newcastle United getting the all-clear for new owners, which I'm sure we'll be discussing at length in the coming weeks and months. For now, though, let's join Statman Dave to assess the race for the top four and what is next for Manchester United, Chelsea and Leicester now the season is over. Dave, welcome. How are you? Yeah, not bad, Bolton. Not bad. Long season. Um, Long season, indeed. Mate, wasn't a massive fan of the football post-restart. No. Too much football, quality dipped. I think they should have potentially just canned the whole thing. This has got nothing to do with Liverpool winning the league. You're saying you want no, to... No, no, this is just, you know, objectively. Perfectly unbiased. Football not good enough. Let's let's void and null it. Let's take the title away uh, and it, everyone will have Dave, a better time. If you'd have cancelled the season, Manchester United wouldn't have finished third in the league. They wouldn't have qualified for the Champions League. And uh, mounted what I think some are rightly saying is a stunning achievement by the club and, and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. But it's like the, the Man United Champions League. Now, that is absolutely awesome. It's going to be amazing. But yeah. defeating <laughs> Liverpool would have been more fun. Uh, but for Man United, look, you know, you've got to look at the statistics, Boltwood. That's why I'm here. Stat man fraud, as they call me on the internet. <laughs> United <laughs> finished third in the league. Average 2.3 points per game against the top six sides. Wow. Now that's fire. Conceded 18 goals fewer than last season. Again, 54 last season, 36 this season. Some say Harry Maguire is the next coming of Jesus. (laughs) Not not many people are saying (laughs) that, I feel like. The big stats, the ones that really going to hurt Lawrence McKenna. The front three, 
with an average age of 21, scored 44 mm-hmm. goals between them. I mean, it's impressive. It is impressive. Four goals, Boltwood. Obviously, um, since the restart, completely rejuvenated. But what do you make of the achievement overall with your, with your unbiased hat on uh, still? I mean... Manchester United, at the end of the day, they do have the highest wage bill in the league by some distance. They finished in the top four. You'd say, given those resources, that's the bare minimum. However, given where they were at at the start of the season and at Christmas, how much credit do you think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer deserves for finishing third? Yeah, well, obviously, I think that they're closest to the top two teams in the league, and that's where they kind of wanted to be, closer. Um, you mm. know, Liverpool and City are on another level to the rest of the teams in the league. It's a good achievement for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I think... It's the the end has been frustrating. It's been you know we've we've sort of crawled over the line um, when we've had a really good patch of form and then we've you know gone back on on previous ideas that haven't really worked. But I think mm-hmm. overall you've got to be happy. Third position is is kind of like the new you know top of the the rest of the league if we put it that way away from Liverpool and, and City. But it kind mm-hmm. of sits on like this third position. It doesn't mean anything if we don't do anything with it. Like if Jaden Sancho isn't bought quickly, if the team isn't set up for next season to, to start fast, then what was the point in this? I think that's the thing. I think United are in a very good position now. They're in a position of power. You know, they finished ahead of Chelsea. They finished ahead of Arsenal. They finished ahead of Leicester City. But they need to, you know, put the foot on the gas in in sense of getting their business done, organising things quickly. Because if they do what they've done previously in Windows and waited and waited and waited and then made the signings, they ain't enough time for that. They've got the Europa League, which finishes on the 20, 21st, and then the season starts on the 12th. Mm. They need to get stuff done <laughs> now, right now. They need to well, be on the blog. Like on the phone. Look, bro, we're going to give you 150 million. Shut up. We'll take Jaden Sancho. We'll have first option on a Haaland, and give that's it, it right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but I can't hate you, but it's breaking up. Bye. I think that is happening now. It looks like they're going to sign him as soon as they meet Dortmund's evaluation, which it looks like they will do, which I think is just over a hundred million according to the reports. But if they do bring him in, what does he bring to this this side that's missing? I mean, who is he going to start ahead of in that in that attack? I think it's depth. I think that's one of the things. Olegan Solskjaer's not been great with his bench. I think Olegan Solskjaer's some of his selections have uh, have been questionable in the back end of the season. I think some players are very very tired, um, and we can't do that for a full season. So it means that we need to improve the bench. This is maybe a, a message to the, the board that, look, my team, my squad isn't good enough. I don't trust Andreas Pereira. I don't trust this guy. I don't trust that guy to come on and make an impact on the game. So that's where someone like Jaden Sancho comes on, that United now have Jaden Sancho, uh, Bruno Fernandes. They have Greenwood. They have Marcel and Rashford. You know, it's five players that play four positions. They still need more. Like, that's the, the honesty of it. They need more. Where would you where do you think Jack Grealish might fit in then? Because these links have intensified in the last few days. They seem to have cooled off. Now reports suggesting that because Manchester United are qualified for the Champions League, there is that that scope to potentially outlay up to fifty million on the Villa captain. I mean, it's been clear, apparently been made clear to him that he won't necessarily be a starter if he does join. But where does he fit in? What does he bring potentially to this side? Chances created Boltwood. You know where from? Open play. Who created the most chances for Man United in the Premier League this season? Go, Boltwood. Bruno Fernandes. <laughs> really? Who was it? Keep going. Uh, Paul Pogba. <laughs> he was injured quite a lot. Uh, who else would have made the chance? Martial. Marcus no. Marcus Rashford. No. Luke Shaw. Sure. No. Harry Maguire. No. Scott McTominay. No. Matic? No. Who? There's literally one dude we've not spoke about. Comes from Brazil. Fred? Yep. 
Fred. Really? Wow. Fred. Wow. That is Incredible. the problem. United need to create more chances. And Jack Grealish is the other. Yeah, Jack, Jack Grealish ranked number two behind uh, Kevin De Bruyne and chances created from open play, Boltwood. That's where uh, United need to get a better. Open play, close play. So, honestly, great signing. I'd buy him tomorrow. I'm curious. Of course, we spoke a lot about Bruno Fernandes in the last few weeks. He's been a revelation. He's been credited with unlocking that attack. But tactically, with that front free, great podcast, I'm curious what your opinion is on... You know, a lot gets made of, is that an attacking structure that's down to the coaching, it's down to Solskjaer, it's something they can go forward with and replicate, or are they beholden to the individual quality of those forward players? Like, how is that attack structured? It's a difficult one, because there's things I've seen where I've been like, that looks good. The build-up with three, one of the centre mids drops into a back three, the other centre mid sits at six, and then the... Narrow, the three behind the centre forward narrow, the fullbacks get high and they have a centre forward through the middle. Looks good. The issue is when they get pressed like a la Southampton, a la West Ham United, then they have problems. And that's something that they need to fix. Look, you know, it's simple. Adapt. Instead of building like that, have one of your fullbacks in an inverted position. Build with another player, three and a two. Or leave Pogba high, build with one of the fullbacks in a back three change these little things that will make a massive difference to how United are playing. Get Marcus Rashford wide right, wide left. Get him wide, not in the inside channel. Like There's little things that need to do. I think the problem with United this season, one of the big problems is, if you compare them to Liverpool, Liverpool have got two of the best creative fullbacks in the league in the world. Mm-hmm. Trent, 13 assists from fullback. The man is an absolute beast, right? <laughs> His delivery is incredible. Like, you have to have playmakers in those positions. What's gone even further this season for Liverpool in terms of most progressive passes, passes mm-hmm. that are breaking lines and are playing into the final third, Trent and Robertson are ranked number one and two for Liverpool. In the league, they are ranked two and three. Fullbacks have space at the moment. Fullbacks have the time to make things happen. So I think that's the issue with Man United that Wambasaka, right? Got slated a lot at the back end of the season. Wrong time to slate him. Start of the season, his expected assists wasn't great. Back end of the season, his expected assists, his dribbles, massively improved. He's someone that's got potential. Look, he's not the finished product, but he's got potential. I think on the other side at left back would be somewhere where I'd be looking to recruit straight away. If you get, right. if you had a Marcelo by playing behind Marcus Rashford right now, that left-hand side is disgusting. Like, you can't <laughs> deal with it. You just can't deal with it. Like, how are you supposed to deal with Marcus Rashford's ability, flair, passing range, and then someone of mm. Marcelo's ilk or Andy Robertson's ilk? that's that good going forward, like, you're done. You're done out here. And I think that's an area where United need to recruit left back mm. massively. It's going to be interesting to see if they do. Obviously, Sancho is a superstar. They're bringing in Grealish. I think he's a fantastic player. As you say, are they going to improve? Are they going to strengthen in those positions potentially where they 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 really need those reinforcements? But we'll move on to Chelsea. Chelsea, Chelsea, fourth in the Chelsea. End. It didn't feel like many people were giving them a chance of qualifying for the Champions League at the start of the season. Obviously, with that transfer ban, Frank Lampard coming in there. How do you evaluate his performance this season and, and Chelsea's performance? They've been sensational going forward, Boltwood. I think that's something that we didn't expect. And I think he did well to manage the season when Tammy was injured and, and, and wasn't firing and bringing Giroud in. And he did well with Mason Mount, who started the season red hot, hit a bad patch of form and finished the season really well. He did well with, uh, you know, his midfield selection to a point, bringing Christian mm-hmm. Pulisic in, in, in at the right times. I thought he did really well with the forward players. They, you know, they seem to be getting a lot of 
of joy out of playing of under course. Lampard in terms of expected goals forward, something that Lawrence McKenna always bangs on about. What's the expected goals of this game? He does. What's the expected goals? Well, Chelsea had the second best expected goals in the goddamn league forward. Wow. But forward, there's always going to be a but here. Go they on. can't bloody defend. Dar- Derby County couldn't defend with their fullbacks. They struggled yeah. behind the fullbacks. That was a tactical thing that Lampard needed to fix at Chelsea. What's he done, Boltwood, mm. in a season? Not fixed it. Not fixed it, Boltwood. I believe that's an issue with fullback positioning. I believe that's an issue with balance. I believe that's an issue with the centre-halves not being able to defend wide. I believe that's an issue with not having a proper defensive midfielder that screens the back four like a, a you know, an Didi. Angulo Kante isn't that player. He just never has been that player. Mm. People need to look at Angulo Kante and see what he did for Leicester City, see what he did for Chelsea. Both of those teams, he played as the furthest of a partnership of two up the pitch, pressing, harrying, being aggressive. He's a chaos player. He isn't a system player. He didn't do great under Sari. He's not doing great under Frank Lampard. It's time for them to sell. Like, if they're brutally honest with themselves, sell Angulo Kante. Yeah, Chelsea fans are going to be crying about this. They're going to be like, Dave, you're yeah, being an arsehole. But look, you want to move the team on. You sell him, you buy Wilfred and Didi. That's fixed. Wow. That's fixed a lot of their issues. Look, I don't think you there's an issue of goalkeeper. Kante with his own replacement from Leicester. Yeah. you got to, you got to do it, man. Like, Matteo Kovacic as well. Not a fan. Go on. Get rid of him. Put him in the bin as well. Jorginho, put him in the bin. Take him out to the trash and don't let him back in the football (laughs) club. Again, that's something that Lampard needs to fix. And Kovacic may not be the answer in central midfield. And I do think that Chelsea will score loads, will concede loads next season. Like they've bought the best German centre forward. They've bought the best creative (laughs) playmaker in the Champions League. But they ain't got no defenders or defensive midfielders or fullbacks. Yeah, this is the thing. It seems massively overloaded and unbalanced, given all the criticisms that are playing the obvious to everyone. To then uh, sign Kai Havertz as well. Yeah, it does seem uh, a slightly strange strategy to be pursuing. But there's something about Frank Lampard. I've met Frank Lampard before. He's a lovely guy, really nice guy. Um, he really was. However, he has rubbed me up the wrong way a little bit this season. I felt like his remarks, his response to Raheem Sterling talking about the lack of black representation in management. His remarks were a little bit tone deaf there. Yep, felt like his stinky. antics on the sideline against Liverpool. Stinky. He just seems like someone for some reason, despite all of his success. And as I said, I've met him. He's a lovely guy. He seems to have this massive chip on his shoulder. <laughs> now, maybe that's just me. Maybe he's earned all of his success so far in management. But do you see the, the achievements he's made so far in his coaching career, including this season, as evidence of a highly talented young manager? Or are there those kind of tactical gaps that you've mentioned that kind of are the, the caveats when we evaluate someone like Frank Lampard. Yeah, that's the thing. There are these tactical gaps. And if we ignore that and just pretend it's because the goalkeeper's crap, then we're all idiots. <laughs> and the goalkeeper but is crap. Is. Don't get me wrong. He is absolutely <laughs> crap. Like, he is one of the worst save percentages I've ever seen in my life. And that's is it something that. 55 or 60%? Or something that's something like Lampard should have fixed pretty early on. And that's something that he should have mm. just evaluated and said, look, you're done, bro. Like, <laughs> he's done, done that now so this is the thing it's, it's going to be interesting to see if they add all these attacking players it does seem like the goalkeeper position is one that they're going to address I've seen talk of which seems a little bit fanciful Jan Oblak yeah. being brought in um, first they're going to have to sell Kepper I assume as well which might be easier said than done sorry but we're just, just stats wise right you mentioned that 55% save percentage so I just went on football yeah. ref that's got like advanced goalkeeping metrics one yeah, of which on. is the post shot expected goals minus goals allowed in English that's quantifying how many goals you should have conceded yep. by the quality of shot minus the goals you've actually conceded right right 
And I'm looking down the list being like, where's Kepa? No, it's got to be about minus one. It's got to be minus one. Minus 9.2. Wow. It's like rock bottom. He is below Angus Gunn, who conceded nine goals in a single game. Wow. Is that the, who's he the closest is rock to bottom Kepa? of the league. The closest is six. Minus six, Angus Gunn. Jordan Pickford again, oh, 4.8. Wow. It's not Minus. been a great goal, uh, season for goalkeepers, has it? Um, no fine, I just wanted to... the the Is the task facing Lampard next season blending that balance between the young players that he's brought in who've succeeded and these stars who are coming and obviously that attacking, defending balance we're talking about? Is, is he going to be able to, to, to address that? It's going to be tough because he's kind of backed himself into a corner with too many players. Mm. Like, like Mason Mount has to play. Like Mason Mount's development has been sensational over the last two years. Does Pulich now start ahead of him? And are they competing for the same position? Pulisic is still a little bit inconsistent for me. I think he has really good spells of games, like four or five games in a row, then he'll be poor for 10 games and he'll be good again. Um, mm. Like Hakim Ziyech and Timo Werner have to start, full stop. Like they just do. They are levels above the rest of the teammates. They just are. Mm. Um, I f- I so do how, how, my, how do you my... fit that in? Like how do you fit in Tammy Abraham who... Deserves to be starting for Chelsea, in my opinion. Shrewd, Shrewd's been fantastic in this. Yeah, he has been. He's been real good, but like for Chelsea's future, Olivier Giroud isn't quite Mm. right. I think he's right this season because he's got them to the Champions League again. A player that I'd sell, like you don't need him anymore. You've got Tammy Abraham and and, uh, Timo Werner. Mm. So right, so those three have got to be in: (laughs) Tammy, Timo, and. Hakeem. You just play. I said it the other right. way. You just play no defenders. But where the hell do the rest of the dudes go? Mason Mounts. Play, play Mason Mounts centre Mason back. Mount, Every deep it? line playmaker. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's going to be a mess. It's going to be tough for fantasy football managers as well. Trying to fit uh, all your Chelsea yeah, attackers can, into yeah, a team. Timo Werner, bro. That's it. <laughs> what about finally uh, Leicester City? Who obviously missed out yeah, in the race for the top four. Poor old Brendan Rodgers. Um, they did have a fifteen-point lead over Manchester United in February. This has been oft spoken about. Is this a colossal failure again on the on the behalf of, of Brendan Rodgers, or with a bit of perspective, it's a real achievement for the club to qualify for Europe to finish fifth? No, he's an absolutely choked, man. Right. <laughs> he's probably <laughs> he's choked fifteen points. That is terrible. Given what he's up against, as I said, Manchester United, biggest wage bill in the league, Chelsea. But, clubs with much bigger resources, the injuries, they, they were very unlucky maybe with the circumstances. Could you give, can you cut Brendan a bit of slack, Dave? Absolutely not. He built a system, 4-3-3, was sick, looked really good. And he's, he moved away from it back into the season. He played a back three versus a Bemiang, Saka and Lacazette and wondered why they just sprinted him behind multiple times and moved him out of the central position. Like He's had injury problems, but he still could have played 4-3-3. And that was how they were getting such success at the start of the season. Yes, there was no fullbacks. Yes, there were other issues, but mm. like you've probably given where they were. Yeah, you've proper bottled it. Like like the like the league title bottled it. Is this something though a, a, a fantastic platform for Leicester to build on? Qualifying for the Europa League, I think Rogers is a very good manager. They've got the top scorer in the league now, Jamie Vardy, of course. You know, there's this new contract for James Madison in the offing who looks set to leave earlier in the season. There's talk now that Ben Chilwell might even stay, might not be going to Chelsea. Is that not something very strong for, for Rodgers to build on going into next season? If you're not a top six side, you have to sell your players at the peak of their value. Ben Chilwell, peak of value this season if Chelsea won him. James Madison was the peak of the value when Manchester United wanted him. They should have sold. Get that investment. Right, so you're thinking of it as a business, right? They bought Harry Maguire in for what? 12 mil or whatever it was. They sold him for 80 they bought Ben Chilwell for peanuts. They were going to sell him for 80. They bought 
Madison for like 12 mil from Norwich or whatever it was, they could have sold him for loads Sell of money. for 100. Yeah. Like, and then you're recru- then it's on your recruitment. And then it's on who do you come in to replace it? Who plays left back? Who? And But the, the thing with Leicester City, they've done very well with that. They've made good signings. Yuri Tielemans has come in, la- in the last year. He's a fantastic central, young central midfielder. Like, they bought Madison. Like, this is the problem with clubs. Like, Bournemouth are a classic example of a club that's just, their recruitment has been trash. Their net mm. over the last, like, hold on, let me get it up. Let me get the figures up for you, Boltwood. Get up the net spend. Talk their about net, net spend, spend, fella. For Bournemouth, right. Actually, we'll go through all the lot, right. So, that in the last <laughs> five years, so since 15-16, they've mm. spent £248 million. 200, right. nearly £250 million, pounds, right? Their total mm. income has been £71 million. So their overall net spend over the five-year period is minus £177 million. Mm. Their recruitment has been shocking. But also, <laughs> Callum Wilson for £50 million. You sell him! You fucking yeah. sell him! Spurs were after him, were they not? I think last season. Chelsea, or... Ryan Frazier, £25 million when he's got a year on his contract. Oh. Number one, if you ever let a player go down to a year on his contract, you should sack yourself. Number two, you have to sell him <laughs> because he wants to leave. Christian Eriksen, why do you play shit this start of this season, Boltwood? Because his mind was on the transfer. Why has Ryan Frazier been stinky this season, going from 38 big chances created in the league to about seven? He wants to come to Spurs. He wants that to was leave. It, yeah. Got yeah. to bin them, bro. And I think that's the thing Leicester City have fallen into that trap. Like, they could have strengthened their squad. Their squad isn't good enough. How are you strengthening your squad at that level? Sell, buy, sell, buy, sell, buy. They sell James Madison. <laughs> they could buy two players, three players. <laughs> They sold Harry Maguire and they've not they've not they've not bought enough quality back. They got mm. Soyuncu early doors. They've got a lad called Benkovic, who's very, very good centre half. But why have they not used that money to buy a backup centre forward, a backup left winger, a starting right winger, a new central midfielder? Hmm. I, I completely agree. I think in these Premier League clubs, the pressure is so high. There, there's so much risk aversion because the stakes are so high. It's difficult, I think, to make these decisions. Look, Boltwood, when you're producing the best bit of YouTube content as you do all the time, you say yay or nay. You want this piece of talent? Do you want this piece of talent to come? Do you want Lawrence McKenna to be on the video? Nah. No. That man Dave. <laughs> yes. That's the man yes. I got damn one. Get him up. Sign him up. Offer him whatever he uh, wants. You know what I mean? Like, you know in your job what is good and what is bad. Like, you lose an 80 million pound def- defender. Improve the squad. Get some wonder kids in for Brazil. But <laughs> these guys not play football, goddamn manager. Brendan, get on foot manager this summer. Test it all out on hey, Just do it. T- tactically, it needs a bit of work as well. <laughs> yeah. Dave, thank you very much for your time. We're going to leave it there. Thank you very much for, for analyzing, reassessing the top four for us. Um, if the listeners want to find more of you, what you got coming up on, on the channel this week? You got any big videos? You got anything that people should be watching? Um, I've got a Premier League reaction to my prediction video. Like top oh. YouTube content. Did you get anything colossally wrong? Oh yeah. Where did you, where did you put Newcastle to finish? Relegated. Okay, excellent. Let's finish up. Uh, we wanted to talk about Black Lives Matter. Obviously, the movement is perhaps no longer dominating our news headlines and and the social media conversations as it once was a couple of months ago. That doesn't mean it's any less important. And I think it is important. It is crucial to look at how the moment is still influencing those in power, particularly on this podcast with regards to sport, with regards to football, and how those changes are being made or how they're not being made in terms of addressing the inequality and the discrimination, which is sadly so prevalent in our society. Um, Before I talk about some of the developments we saw today in in England, Nico, I did want to ask you about, you know, your thoughts on where we're at. It's obviously a very different situation 
in the US as it is into the UK in terms of the atmosphere as well. But looking at the Premier League, looking at football specifically, I mean, the players have obviously been kneeling at kickoff. They've been doing that since the restart began. The badges still adorn the shirts and, and the broadcast here in the UK. How how effective or how powerful is that gesture? How effective does it continue to be, if at all? Well, I think it's important also to start that off with um, <clears throat> saying, like, it's not just for me to decide, but my sort of opinion of it stems from the fact that obviously I am an American and, and sort of I would like to imagine or, or have the idea, maybe perhaps incorrectly, but I think correctly, that, um, you know, this movement, this kneeling movement started here in the United States with, with Colin Kaepernick and his um, sort of silent protest all those years ago in the NFL. And like, I've had various conversations with people on different sides of the argument and different opinions on the subject matter. And I think what I've come to understand about it is that a lot of people's arguments here in the States is that like, why do I have to be beholden to an art, uh, to a message that I don't care about or that, you know, I don't want to hear when I'm watching football, but that's kind of the the point I think with, with Kaepernick's initial protest is that his only sentiment that he wanted to push across when he started kneeling during the national anthem, when he played in the NFL was that during the national anthem, which is a celebration of nationality and the things that this country espouses to its citizens is that not everybody is served the same. And there's a problem with the way that people of color are policed in this country. And that's what I want to bring attention to. And that was his message. That was the point of what he started to do then. And it has started a dialogue and people have reacted a variety of different ways to that dialogue. But nonetheless, it has started a dialogue. So I think in, in some sense, it's an unprecedented success. I think you contrast that with the movement that's going on now or the gestures that are being put forth now. And I think at, at the beginning, you look at it and say, you know, this is a wonderful thing because a, a league, which unlike the NFL until now, which unlike national leagues until now, has, you know, has, has largely either ignored or, or in some way hampered the ability for players to express themselves in such a manner. The Premier League has gone and had completely adopted it and said, you know, we are here for the fight against racism. We want to, to be with our, our players who are affected by this in a significant way and support them in doing so. The difficulty with that, with that again, is, is, is analyzing, again, the initial action, which is to say that Colin Kaepernick kneeled because it was something that was atypical. It's customary in the United States to stand up for the national anthem and not doing so purposely brings forth a message of, I have something to say. So when you contrast that with everybody adopting it and the referees doing it and all the players doing it, then while it's a good thing that an official codified sort of institution has backed a movement of positive change, does that message of kneeling maintain the same message when it's been adopted by that institution? And does that hamper, you know, positive social effect for the things that these players are trying to, to combat? I think that's the kind of, the kind of the question that we have to ask ourselves. And like, just does this, you know, universal adoption of we're going to kneel to fight racism, what, what does it do when the person and, and the things that, you know, haven't done enough thus far, um, you know, say, oh, yeah, we're on board now. 
It's interesting, isn't it, Chris? Because I think it doesn't, as Nico's saying, it doesn't have the same context. It doesn't have the same meaning here. I think in England, it's it's seen as a as a sign of solidarity. I know there's obviously those historical roots, um, but particularly with regards to to sports, the players who are participating in that and the, and the league by ex- extension, it is seen as a, 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 mo- a moment of solidarity with that movement. I think what's interesting is over here, we've obviously seen politicians like Dominic Raab and, and Boris Johnson, maybe through ignorance, maybe through uh, willful ignorance or uh, just a very revealing moment in their character, kind of questioning that gesture um, and maybe sort of willfully distorting Solidarity it. With their own yeah, system. maybe sort of will, willfully distorting it into something it isn't and and taking away from its its meaning. I think over here, Chris, what's interesting is in the couple of weeks after the 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 gestures started, there kind of was this moment where I think we we spoke about it on the podcast. It became too complicated to be unequivocal anymore in the sense that the Premier League getting behind Black Lives Matter and making sure, as I said, the, the slogan and the, the logo was adorning shirts and broadcasts, etc., it felt very unarguable. There's no one who can question this. We're getting behind this movement and we're on the right side of history, etc. It did start to become a little bit too complicated for the Premier League a few weeks later when obviously, as you might have expected or, or as should have been expected, there are certain political aims and political motivations behind a movement like that who actually want to achieve change within institutions and, and within the, the mechanisms of power in society. That's when you started to see this this kind of gradual retreat. Certain pundits on Sky Sports all of a sudden weren't wearing the badge, all of a sudden weren't speaking in 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 support. It's kind of sad to see. I think, although the the kind of dissipation of momentum was to be expected, you know that kind of the intensity and the kind of ferocity with which the whole situation, the whole conversation started was so potent i don't think it ever could have could have lasted to that extent but to see it kind of fizzle out a little bit now and to see what feels like we're left with the empty gestures that we feared we we would be is something that is quite disappointing to see in my, in my opinion chris yeah the, the the thing the thing is it was very I, I guess like with with anything of that nature it is very powerful the first time you do it um, but if I can draw a comparison here in, in the US, when I go to games, a lot of the time they play the national anthem before. Now, as someone that didn't grow up with that, it still sort of resonates with me quite a lot. Whereas I see a lot of people who grew up here where it doesn't, because it doesn't really matter what sporting event you seem to go to, they play the national anthem. Um, which is why I think almost as soon as you agree that this is what we are going to do, you have to think of the next few beats after that. So, okay, we're going to do this uh, demonstration, if you will, or whichever word you want to attach to it, and that will then lead into this. So some form of tangible action within the game to say, and this is how we are showing Black Lives Matter. Because whether it's kneeling or whatever, yeah, that's great to show, okay, like this is our line in the sand. But you can't just keep drawing the line over and over again. That's not really progress. And I think, as you say, it starts to become an empty gesture, which is disappointing. Um, I think 
it's the same with things like the badges and things like that. And and I know Troy Deeney and I think his partner designed the logo that the Premier League have used. There have been a lot of little positive steps like that. And even just the fact that Deeney has trademarked that on the basis of that money that is generated from those logos goes to black charities. That's great. That's almost kind of what I'm advocating here is that those next steps, it's then about, okay, well, how are we going to make it so that there are more black voices in football across the board? And I think to a certain degree, you you kind of saw that with some uh, media outlets and things like that. But truth be told, some of that felt a little bit tokenism as well. It didn't feel like actually, you know, this is us kind of trying to evolve. It's more like, oh, we kind of need to do that now. Otherwise, we don't look as if we're supporting it. And you shouldn't really be coming at it from that angle, in my opinion. It should be, even if you have to say, look, we don't have the answers right this second, and we're sorry that we don't, but we are now going to go away and think about the best ways. Because that's the other problem as well, is that with an issue as sensitive as this one, every step is a big step. So if it's a misstep, you better believe that you feel that misstep. But when it's a positive one in the right direction whether it's getting more voices into that thing to i give the athletic credit hiring a diversity uh officer of some sort i see that as a positive step i have to be honest and say that by the same token they just hired a bunch of people so they had a real opportunity to do it then and so (laughs) there's almost a, a little bit of an onus on them to say you know what we dropped the ball on that one, so we apologise. We appreciate that our readership is diverse and we need to somewhat be reflective of that. So I think that's where we're at now is that, yeah, we really need to sit and think, how do we make it so that that kneeling, whether we continue it next season, season after, etc., etc., doesn't become this hollow thing of, oh, well, like, yeah, okay, we acknowledge them, cool, let's get on with the game. Like, it can't be an afterthought almost. And that's that's a difficult uh, question to find the answer to, but I know the answer exists and that's what should motivate all of us to find it. Hmm. I, I think the positive is, the positive is the culture is changing and it might be slower and it might be more incremental than we'd like. And, you know, we're still seeing certain things play out that, suggest okay the people in power aren't ready yet to to put in force initiatives and put in force different things that are potentially gonna harm them and 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 erode their own power in a way i think in the uk um you may have seen the headlines today that the football association chairman greg clark effectively came out and claimed that the fa itself the the professional games representatives effectively blocked a review of the diversity of his own members um, and sort of saying he was disappointed with that, which is kind of indicative of, okay, the, the change isn't happening at the top in the corridors of power. He's kind of walked that back a little bit now and said that, you know, he misunderstood the situation and the Premier League have come out and sort of welcomed that clarification, and which they say was kind of a distorting of, of what actually happened at this meeting, that there is still a commitment to diversity, that there is still, still a, a push there. But I think, um, yeah, as I say, if... The, the positive and, and the, the the optimist in me wants to think that the culture is changing and we're seeing it happen. Um, it's just obviously going to take a long time and these changes are going to 
are going to be more incremental than perhaps we'd we'd like. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's there's so many different ways to go with it because it's a, obviously such a complex issue. Not in the sense that like it's complex, so you know we can't dive into it, or 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 it's too com- or you know it's 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 intraversible in some sense. It's just there's so many different ways to talk about it because I had I had you know I wanted to ask you guys about the fact that I've had conversations with the other your people who. Well, you're not technically in Europe anymore, but, you know, Europeans technically are people across the pond that um, that don't that they see race and issues of racism and issues of systemic racism as an American problem. And, you know, they 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 see it as as something that's over there and, you know, put my fist up. But like, it's not my country's problem. My country's fine. And that obviously isn't true. But I, I also think there's. And, you know, there's an element of this where I think of the story that we saw where, uh, you know, Wilfred Zaha posted the screenshots of the boy who had racially abused him online prior mm. to the game. And then, you know, he went to the kid. I, I don't know if he went to jail, but the police were certainly involved to some extent. And that's kind of I think that's a perfect encapsulation of everything or at least some of what the Black Lives Matter movement wants to address is the issue of policing. Right. And the issue, the conception that we have of police. And I think it's a, it's a particularly important issue because we in that situation, we especially in this moment, we've said Zaha's posted the images. The boy has been found. The police have dealt with him. But that's exactly what the movement is trying to get rid of, actually, I think, at its core, which is to say that we look to the police which is a source of state power, which has abused in many cases across the globe um, its rights and and its and its abilities to to do things, um, you know, and and we we just kind of wash our hands of it and say, okay, that kid's racist, and now the police have dealt with him. We can wash our hands of it. But does that situation? Is that person? Is that kid? Is his mind about racism? Is his empathy towards people of color going to be changed with the presence of the police or the punishments to the letter of the law that happened therein so that's a conversation i think that needs to be had i also think i've mentioned in the group chat like the coverage of gareth bale by english football journal twitter as a whole it has been as innocuous as it seems we all laugh and smile and 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 sort of enjoy to a to a you know empathetic or sympathetic point of view the fact that he's like sleeping on the real madrid bench but when a black player does that it's unprofessional. It's indicative of his work ethic. It's this, it's that, it's the other. So all of these things kind of function as minor sort of symptoms of the larger problem of racism and the, the, the issues that affect, that affect people of color disproportionately across the globe. And so my initial question, which nobody has to answer and nobody really has to kind of, kind of, um, provide a a packageable solution to but rather that i just want everybody to think about and i obviously include the listeners in that is just are is the gesture that was initially conceived to disrupt and 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 stop people from think from just thinking about the way that they have always thought of things does that have the same effect and does it bring attention to the issues that we need to solve i think when nico talks about systemic racism and it being an american problem i don't think it is i think in the same way that love is expressed different ways in different cultures, I think hate is expressed in different ways in different cultures. And I think perhaps in America, from my experience, as brief as it is, and I feel important to to, to preface what I say with that, that it's brief, it, it is a lot more overt. Um, it's a lot more in your face. Whereas I think in 
in England, from my experience, it's a lot quieter. It, it sits in mines, it sits in inboxes, and that kind of thing. Um, they're both abhorrent. They both exist. I don't, I don't think it's fair to pit the progress of the respective nations against each other because I don't think that does any good either. But I think it can perhaps feel overwhelming to say that, well, we both have this huge problem and how do we solve it and, and everything like that. These are questions, if I'm very honest, that I don't have the answer to and, and don't have the confidence in trying to answer either, especially without deep introspection and reflection. Um, as much to say that, yeah, I, th I think if, if England for a second thinks that it has things under control, Wilfred Zaha shows it doesn't. Um, because I can promise you now that that boy, whether he was 12, 13, 14, I forget how old explicitly, he's picked that up from somewhere. He's, not, he's known how to Google those things. Some, someone older has introduced him to that rationale, that mentality or whatever. And just because it wasn't done in the street or it wasn't shouted at Zaha as he left the stadium doesn't lessen its impact. If anything, I think it possibly makes it even worse because it it's, can attack him at any point. And the, where do you find safety when that's your experience in life, you know? Thank you very much, guys. Another fascinating podcast. Nico, got any uh, interesting musings or writings that the listeners should be uh, should be checking out this week? Uh, um, yeah, I I, uh, I mentioned it on the Bielsa one, but it's worth re-mentioning. I think I wrote something about uh, arrival and language and how we use language and what it means to us, and you know the difficulties of communicating those problems therein. Um, you can find that on my Twitter. I'm also embarking upon writing a it's not a book but it's like a short pdf of five sort of collected essays that will be released for five dollars so you get five essays for five dollars which of... five marvel movies will you be focusing on for that <laughs> uh it'll be avengers oh, the other yeah. Aven avengers okay uh, sounds good you know iron man 2 you've got my five dollars uh, no it'll be <laughs> it'll be you get a free copy yeah. oh, uh it'll be far far more interesting than that but um yeah hopefully I, you know i'm on my way to completing that and hopefully i would much rather people buy it because they're interested in reading it as opposed to just wanting to support me as someone on the podcast that they listen to but that will come out and you can find it on my twitter as, as with everything else fantastic uh chris what about you got anything that we should be uh checking out this week uh, I too am writing five essays. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which ones are you doing? An inside job. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, um, genuinely at the minute, I have absolutely nothing on. Um, just just trying to uh, get from day to day, I think. Arm wheel. Arm wheel. Arm wheel. You can check out my witty banter on twitter that's all i've got to offer these days no no musings or fascinating <laughs> writing but guys thank you so much for listening you can listen to us all again next week on wednesday we will see you 